Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. I'm a, I'm a fan of your work, and uh, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be on on your program today. Robert, likewise, as I told you off camera, I uh, I really like your work, so it's it's an honor to have you on the podcast as well. Um, nutrition and health is something that, I mean, it just is everything, right? Like your health is everything. And what you do is very inspiring to spread the truth about all this. Um, you have a book coming out called Lies I Taught in Medical School, which is excellent. I really recommend people checking it out. Um, but, but Robert, before we get into everything, could you briefly explain uh, who you are and what you do for the people who might not be familiar with you? Sure. Yeah. My background is I'm a, I'm a practicing physician. My specialty is radiology, <laughs> medical imaging. Although in the last decade or so, I've transitioned into uh, metabolic health and wellness and longevity. And um, I spent my, essentially my entire career at, um, at medical schools uh, in Southern California as a as a full professor there. And um, as such, I'm sort of a product of the medical establishment. Um, some of the things I'll, uh, we may talk about today will, will seem like um, uh, conspiracy theories or controversial things, but I just want to be clear, I am, I, my background and my position is is really in the in the ivory towers of medicine. I basically I practice medicine. I was fortunate to do research, write grants, and you know do uh, hundreds of peer reviewed scientific papers, writing textbooks, all the usual stuff, and and also teaching medical students. So. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is coming from the perspective of someone kind of on the inside of the medical establishment. I'm going to throw a lot of stones at <laughs> everything, uh, but hopefully it's done with, uh, you know, with an open heart and honesty. And, you know, it's the best way um, that I interpret the literature as I read it. But uh, anyway, that's where I'm coming from. Mm, great. All right, really quickly. Uh, sorry to interrupt the the episode. I know I do this always, okay, but I really am sorry. I just have a small favor to ask of you, okay? If you haven't followed the podcast already, please consider doing so. It, it's it's free. It's also it, it's risk free as well. Uh, and I keep saying this, but the bigger the podcast gets, the bigger the guests we can have on, and ultimately the more value I can provide to you. So it's a win win situation, okay? That's something to consider at least, all right? So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, your your book, uh, your new book, Lies I Taught in Medical School is so excellent because it really teaches um, these complex things in a very simple way for, for dummies like me, which uh, was great. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to dive a little bit into some of the lies that you taught about and expand on these. Um, the first one, and I think it's the first one in the book as well, is a calorie is just a calorie, which is for, for me, uh, and I think very many people thought for the longest time that a calorie surplus, eating more calories than you burn equals putting on weight and a calorie deficit, eating less calories than you burn equals losing weight. But essentially there is way more to it than that. Could you expand That's on that? That's right. Yeah, what you said is actually true. It makes sense. You know, people quote the laws of thermodynamics, you know, that calories uh, are are uh, converted into energy and the more energy you you have, it's it, it needs to be stored as fat or, you know, excreted somehow. 
but I guess the the problem with the idea that a calorie is just a calorie and it doesn't matter what type of food, food you eat is misleading. And I think it's at the root of the obesity problem that we're facing today, the epidemic in, in obesity. And American adults, 50% of us are uh, either overweight or obese, and that number is going up. And it's it's not just America, it's worldwide. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in Denmark, there are issues as well around this and, and around the world with where your audience is. But the, the problem with this, this notion that a calorie is just a calorie, and this is being taught at medical schools still. I mean, my medical school still teaches that. Um, and the, the problem is that it drives the advice that people are given when they want to lose weight. And that is just a calorie is a calorie. So if you want to lose weight, just exercise more and eat less, eat fewer calories, right? Uh, and we all know that doesn't work. You know, uh, exercise is a way to build up an appetite. You work up an appetite. <laughs> and and if, you know, we've all probably at one point or another looked at the caloric content of, a, you know, a candy bar we're about to eat. And then we convert that to how many miles we have to run to burn up that many calories. And it really, it really doesn't pencil out. So uh, a lot of people now say that, you know, you can't really outrun a bad diet. In other words, there's not enough exercise you can do to lose weight. So, so what can you do then? Well, if we examine the idea that a calorie is a calorie um, and look at it closer, there's actually a solution in there. And that's because um, the, the three macronutrients, which you've probably talked to your audience about before, which are fat, protein, and carbohydrates, those three macronutrients provide the energy for our bodies from the food. And, and basically all food is a mixture, a combination of one or more of those macronutrients. But the, the interesting thing is uh, there's a hormone that drives obesity. It's called insulin. The job of insulin is to take blood sugar out of our, among other things, out of our bloodstream and store it as fat. So um this hormone insulin really controls whether we gain weight or lose weight. And as an example, you can look at uh, a disease called type 1 diabetes, which is the less common type of diabetes where people have low insulin levels. And these people are typically thin, very, very thin. No matter how many calories they eat, they stay thin because they don't have enough insulin. And similarly, if you look the other extreme, if you take insulin, it's it's available as a drug and it's used to treat diabetics. If you take insulin and inject it into anyone, practically, I can make anyone gain weight by just giving them insulin, and and that because insulin signals the body to store fat. And typically, type two diabetics who have a, a excess supply of insulin and they may take extra insulin as well they typically have problems with weight, they're obese, they're overweight. So what does that mean? What, what can we learn from this? Well, as it turns out, the three macronutrient groups, fat, protein, and carbohydrates do not stimulate insulin equally. In fact, carbohydrates by far are the main stimulators of insulin and fat and protein much less. So I could take the same number of calories and if I eat it as carbohydrates, I'll have a huge insulin rush and a lot stored as fat, 
Whereas if I take the same number of calories and say maybe fat, the insulin won't be secreted and I won't gain as much weight. And sort of an obvious example, I can take a donut, which is sugar and, and carbohydrates. Let's say it's 300 calories. And then I take uh, an egg or a, a piece of cheese, which is an equal number of calories. And I'll eat each one of those. And um, the one, the, the donut actually makes me store fat. And in fact, I'm hungry after the donut because a lot of my, the car, the glucose is stored. So I need more glucose. Whereas the cheese or the egg, I'll eat 300 calories of that. And uh, I'm not hungry anymore. Uh, so the idea of the calorie is just a calorie, I think is misleading. And um, it ignores the fact that insulin drives weight gain. And if we just pay attention to which foods we eat, that's a much better approach to weight loss than just counting calories. Mm. And so when people go on low carb diets like keto or carnivore, they lower their insulin. And does that technically mean that they can eat as many calories as they want and not put on weight? Well, they lower their insulin, we all make some amount of insulin. So even on a even on a a low carb diet, we can gain weight. What happens though, when people go on those types of diets, the ketogenic diet or the low carb diet or the carnivore diet, um, other things happen is that their, their hunger gets, gets suppressed a little bit. So they're not as hungry. And, you know, we've all experienced that with, you know, trying to eat one potato chip, which is largely pure carbohydrates versus one piece of cheese. You know, it's much easier to eat one piece of cheese and not eat the whole, you know, the, the whole thing of cheese versus eat one potato chip. It's because the carbohydrates trigger other things in addition to insulin, which drive our hunger and makes us much more hungry. Mm. There's a term especially used in the, in the fitness industry, the maintenance level. Of, of calories. So if you want to put on weight, build muscle mass, you have to eat in a caloric surplus uh, above your maintenance level. Um, so what I'm a little bit confused about is does the maintenance level change when you have lower insulin or higher insulin? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's say, let's go back to the 300 calorie donut and the 300 calorie piece of cheese. When I eat a 300 calorie piece of cheese, it basically it goes into my body and it's converted to glucose. And, and in some cases it's converted to fats, which can also be metabolized called ketones. But either way, it largely goes to the production of energy because glucose is not turned on very much by fat. On the other hand, when I eat a donut, which is basically pure carbohydrates, the effect on my body is to turn insulin way up. What does insulin do? Well, among other things, it tells the body to store energy as fat. So those 300 calories go in my bloodstream, but maybe let's say 150 of those calories get stored at fat. So what happens is I only get 150 calories net net of, of glucose in my bloodstream. The rest is stored in fat. So I'm my body senses I'm eating, you know, half the amount of food that I was with the piece of cheese. And then the other thing, 
with the insulin and the carbohydrates, we get rebound effects on hunger. So it's sort of like if I eat carbohydrates, um, you know, the one potato chip thing, or if I eat a donut, I'm hungry an hour later mm. because it, it triggers these hunger effects as well. Okay. And so how does the body choose when, if you're bodybuilding, you're trying to put on muscle mass, you're eating more calories than you burn to try to build muscle mass. Um, is there a mechanism that the body uses to choose to build muscle instead of fat when you essentially eat more than you should? Yeah, I mean, there, there are other drivers of building muscle, you know, exercise, as we all know on that, the drivers for storing fat are just insulin with the, mm. with the food being taken in. So if you have a caloric, I guess your question is, uh, if you have a caloric ac access, is it going to go towards fat reserves or is it going to go towards uh, uh, muscle maintenance? And um It depends if you're exercising, then the glucose will go into the muscles. And that's a great way to lower your glucose, which actually lowers your need for insulin. So it's a it's a healthy way to get rid of the glucose and it lowers the insulin spikes there. And and there are other factors on building muscle. Now, that, of course, is protein. And, you know, those macronutrients are needed for protein as well, whereas glucose is sort of the metabolic energy for the muscles contracting. Protein allows them to build muscle and, and go from there. Right. Do you know Paul Saladino? I, I do. Yeah, I know of his work. And uh, yeah, I, I like a lot of the things he does. He has some great, great things. Yeah, absolutely. He talks about, um, so he eats quite a lot of carbohydrates. Um, he, I believe he said he eats about 200 grams of carbs, but they're obviously, they're not from refined carbs or refined sugar. They're from fruit um, and honey uh, as well. What are your thoughts on carbs from fruits? Um, well, fruits are appeal an appealing source of food of, of any macronutrient because they're they're natural. So the you know they're not junk food, which is fills up most of our supermarkets that are processed, industrialized, refined. Fruits are natural. You know they grow on trees, <laughs> that kind of thing, which is good. The problem though with modern fruits is you know hey you know the the story is people. People often say, you know, if, if we didn't eat anything that wasn't available 150 years ago, most of our most of us would have a significant improvement in health, you know. But you know, fruits were around, you know, since Paleolithic times. So for a paleo diet, you should be able to eat fruit. The problem is the fruit from long ago is very different from the fruit today. And that is the fruit today is like like a lot of things it's engineered to optimize certain things that make it appealing and palatable and for for humans that's sugar fructose and glucose in the fruit it's today's fruit would be unrecognizable by our paleolithic mm. ancestors and you've seen it you know with early bananas they're very yeah. small and they you know they're they're not sweet at all and they had they, you seeds know, in them 10,000 years yeah, ago yeah 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 and you know apples watermelon so i think The danger of assuming that fruits are okay because they're 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 natural is a problem because they're not completely natural uh, with fruit today. Um, personally, I think there's 
problems with fruit because of the fructose in it. Um, half of the, you know, half of the sugar or a large percentage of the sugar comes from fructose in in fruit. And fructose, I think, is an underappreciated um, uh, health hazard. Now, it's natural, and a little bit of fructose is good. The problem is, is how much? Because glucose, if you look at glucose, the other component of table sugar, sucrose is made up of glucose plus fructose. The glucose is the sugar that most of us think of. You know, we think of diabetes and glucose in our bloodstream. Every, almost every cell of the body can metabolize glucose for energy, which is interesting. It makes sense. Fructose is, is very different. It's because the only cells other than a small percentage of gut cells, the vast majority of fructose is has to be metabolized in the liver. And what is the liver? Well, the liver is, among other things, it's a detoxification organ. And there's um, what other what other chemicals are go to the liver? Well, the obvious one is alcohol. You know, alcohol is something else that's detoxified in the liver. It's something else that, like fructose, is addictive. In fact, before 1980, uh, the main kind of liver disease that caused fatty replacement in the liver was called alcoholic fatty liver disease, and it was called caused from drinking too much alcohol and the alcohol goes to the liver and the liver converts it to fat and the, it damages the liver. Well, in 1980, something happened. A new disease appeared um, that people didn't recognize at first. They they had fatty liver and everyone assumed, uh, you know, you need to cut back your drinking. And they would say, doctor, I've, I've never touched alcohol in my life. And they'd sort of wink and go, Sure, but you need to you need to stop it, you know, and and then that went on. Eventually, children began coming down with these, and these children weren't drinking alcohol. So, in long story short, beginning in 1980, there's a new liver disease called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It looks just like alcoholic fatty liver disease, but it's not due to alcohol, and it it's now surpassed alcoholic fatty liver disease. In fact, it's the number one cause of liver failure and the number one cause of liver transplants. And this liver failure, this new fatty liver disease is driven by fructose. And um, Rob Lustig from the University of San Francisco, Dr. Lustig, has shown that if you cut fructose out of the diet and actually even substituting glucose isocalorically with fructose in, in kids with fatty liver disease, they can reverse the fatty liver disease in a matter of weeks just by removing fructose from the diet. So this is uh, this is. Uh, a problem with fructose, which which comes from fruit. The other thing about fructose is um, it doesn't spike insulin, unlike glucose. The, it doesn't make the insulin spike. So in fact, the American Dietetic Association used to recommend, Diabetic Association used to recommend that for, for diabetics. You know, eat fructose, it's sweet, but it won't spike your insulin. Mm. The problem is fructose in the liver also drives insulin resistance, which is essentially type 2 diabetes. So it actually makes makes things worse there. And so um, fructose in fruit, um, I don't give it a pass. And I'm very cautious with the amount of fruit I eat just because of because of that factor. The other factor, of course, is high fructose corn syrup, which appeared, no surprise, in the 1980s. Worldwide, Coca-Cola and Pepsi switched from cane sugar to high fructose corn syrup. 
Um, and now it's in essentially every junk food. So we all eat, you know, people eat junk food all the time. So we're getting lots of fructose um, from that. So, um, you know, you have to, in my opinion, you have to be careful with fruit. Uh, Dr. Saladino is a smart man. I respect him, but you know, we, we agree to disagree on, mm. on this point. So another controversial, I suppose, uh, opinion, uh, Saladino has is vegetables are toxic. They have these defense mechanisms. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, you know, each of these rabbit holes are fascinating, you know, mm -hmm. with health and wellness and they're, you know, and, you know, at the end of the day, nobody really knows. I mean, you know, the lies I taught, well, some of the stuff I'm teaching now is going to turn out to be lies. You know, the, the famous quote, 50% of what is taught in medical school would be wrong, you know, five years after you get out, the problem is nobody knows which half. So mm. science is continual evolving, but the, the plant toxin thing, there's actually some, some science to that, you know, and that's one of the things that carnivore advocates use people who eat, you know, and Dr. Saladino used to be a pure carnivore. Uh, originally, I think his first book was called that. And now he's backed it, backed it off a little bit. But one of their arguments for avoiding plants is not that just, you know, meat is good, but actually, like you say, plants are bad. And that it's the idea that they evolve these, these toxins to uh, protect themselves because they can't run around and avoid predators. So they avoid, they develop these natural uh, toxins. Um, I'm, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as worried about all plants and I, I still eat vegetables and all like that, but I do, um, I do pretty much avoid grains altogether um, because Grains have, whether they've evolved for this purpose or not, they have a number of proteins that are pro-inflammatory. You know, the, the obvious one is gluten and celiac disease, but most people don't have celiac disease. But I believe, and there's good evidence to show that up to 50% of adults have inflammatory reaction from from grains, including gluten, or if it's not gluten, even other proteins, pro-inflammatory proteins that grains have. Also, grains are really high in carbs, so they spike your insulin. And finally, in America, at least, there's a uh, weed killer <laughs> called glyphosate that grains are literally soaked in. So um, I think in, in Europe, it's some countries allow it, some countries don't allow it. But in the US, glyphosate is, uh, you know, in in nearly all the grains. <laughs> are, are grains a vegetable? I didn't even know that. No, no, no. Oh, no. okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Or, well, um, good question. I'm not sure. Yeah. What the, and, and you could make the argument that grains evolved to carry the seeds. So they want to be attractive to animals to eat them. So it'd be less likely for him, them to have these toxic, you know, mm. whatever the toxic chemicals are in them. But at least from my opinion, the, the advantages of vegetables and the benefits of vegetables outweigh the, um, outweigh the downsides of these, of these potentially toxic chemicals that Paul mentions. But, um, you know, I, I eat vegetables once in a while. And so I accept that. When you say once in a while, how often is that? Well, um, 
I eat just once a day, so one meal a day. And so uh, it usually is um, very ketogenic mm-hmm. meal. So it's uh, low carb, high fat, and uh, same amount of protein. Basically, the, the dials are people change the amount of pro- amount of fat and carbs really most people keep proteins the same as they go to a low carb, low fat or vary that. So in my diet, I'll, you know, have some Brussels sprouts or something like that uh, with it. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of vegetables. One thing I do stay away from, from vegetables and fruit, I think a reliable way to make any vegetable or any fruit less healthy is to put it in a blender Mm. or you know juice it that kind of thing so i uh if i'm going to eat the vegetable the fruit i eat it whole rather than as a juice and in general i believe it's not a great idea to drink your calories anyway anything you drink should shouldn't have calories in it if you want to be you know (laughs) super healthy about it right (laughs) so so what happens to the vegetables when you blend them well, um, there's there's another type of carbohydrate in vegetables in addition to the the insulinogenic carbohydrates, and these are uh, groups uh, called fiber, and uh, they're soluble and in, insoluble fibers. Um, these fibers are they help our gut, they help our 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 gut microbiome. They're useful for all sorts of things. The other thing they do is they slow the absorption of the carbohydrates of the of the um, starches and glucose in the fruits and vegetables that we eat. And that's actually a beneficial effect because it lowers the spikes in glucose and the spikes in insulin. So these these uh, insoluble, the insoluble fiber makes the fruit and the vegetables healthier. But when you put one of those in a blender, you mechanically break down the fiber. So that fiber, which protects us is less effective in a blended, uh, blended fruit or, or blended fruit or vegetable. And it's even less effective when you just do a juice. And there's a famous study with apples, you know, a whole apple is healthy, you get a little glucose spike, and then you make applesauce by, you know, squeezing it, make the sauce, you still have the the fiber there, but it's all squished out. You drink that and you get a much bigger spike. And then you take the same amount of calories in apple juice where all the fiber is gone. You drink that and it just shoots through the roof. Um, so you, you actually can change the same caloric effect just by manipulating the amount of fiber in it. Mm. Okay. So you eat in a ketogenic diet. And you eat one meal a day and you eat a bit of Brussels sprout sometimes. And uh, what else do you eat? Salads. Yeah, salads. But, um, you know, the problem with salads that most any salad dressing has seed oils in it. So seed oils is something else I avoid besides grains and and the refined carbohydrates. Uh, Seed oils are they have the name uh, vegetable oil but they're, in my opinion, unhealthy pro-inflammatory oils that uh, that we should avoid. And many people, there are many, um, many experts believe that um, the seed oils may be the big drivers for the insulin resistance and the diabetes and the obesity, and, and that the, the refined carbohydrates are less so, even though they, they all came on the scene in the 1980s with the, with the advent of real industrial strength junk food that's, that's everywhere now. Mm. 
Okay, so do you, you eat meat, right? I do. What kind of meat? Well, let me just say, first of all, I there's sort of a political thing about meat eaters or vegans or everything. I'm not in that. I'm completely apolitical. In fact, I used to be a vegan for like 10 years before I had my kids. And so I, I think you can be healthy anywhere from the vegan to the carnivore diet, that spectrum. The key thing is just avoid junk foods. And, you know, honestly, there's a lot more junk food in, in the vegan part of the supermarket than there is in the carnivore part of the supermarket, but you can eat healthy either way. Now I do eat meat and I eat, um, you know, ground beef or chicken or um, pretty much, uh, pretty much anything, you know, the, you try and get things uh, raised, uh, you know, grass fed if you can, because when they're a lot of the beef in America is fed the same things that they feed us, the same junk food is basically corn and soybeans that's subsidized by the federal government uh, that lowers the cost of junk food. So, but yeah, short answer is yes, I eat meat and all kinds. Okay. It is, um, I really empathize with people who try to eat healthy because it is, it is so complex and it, it's, you have information from here and there and everywhere. Uh, people tell you fruits are unhealthy. People tell you vegetables are unhealthy. It's so hard to navigate this space. Yeah. And you even have reputable organizations like the, like we talked about the American Diabetic Association advising their diabetic patients to they have recipes on their website with large amounts of sugar in them. And they tell them just to cover this with insulin. But on the other hand, the American Diabetic Association is funded by um, a number of companies. It's very interesting to look at the list. One of their biggest funders is a company that runs uh, dialysis centers around the world. And dialysis is what people need for their kidneys when they go into kidney failure. And the number one cause of dialysis, the number one cause of kidney failure, of course, is diabetes. Um, but other reputable organizations like the American Heart Association, which was funded by the you know, Crisco and the junk junk oils, you know, early on, still to this day recommends vegetable oil on their website as a quote health heart healthy alternative to other oils which are higher in saturated fats. And I I disagree with that because vegetable oils and and canola oil are seed oils, and I think they should be avoided completely. Yeah. Did you see that YouTube has banned or silenced misinformation in quotes um, from people like Dr. Eric Burke, who talks about the ketogenic diet? So now that <laughs> videos like that will be harder to find on YouTube. That's crazy. Yeah, it's always it's always hard when, you know, what's misinformation? I mean, there are there are, there are reputable studies that um that show the advantages of the keto diet. There are some reputable studies that show the advantages of a low carb, I mean, a low fat diet or the high carb diet. Um, I happen to believe personally, the preponderance of the data and the evidence in my mind is that a, a ketogenic lifestyle is much more healthier for all sorts of reasons, but there are studies out there. So I'm, I worry about stuff like that when it becomes very politicized and, you know, as our, as our food business has become and healthcare has become that certain voices will be lost um, 
because of this. And it's, you know, it's difficult to get to the truth in, you know, in dietary uh, studies, because there's, there are very few controlled prospective studies, they're just not feasible. So it's all epidemiological data, it's correlative data, and causality, you know, can't be inferred from that kind of data. So um, it's very challenging. But when voices are silenced in that fashion, it's very concerning. Yeah, absolutely. It's very hard to fight these big corporations that have all this money, the drug companies, uh, Crisco, <laughs> all those companies. Absolutely. Yeah, they're um, uh, tremendous incentives. Uh, you know, most of the nutrition company and nutrition departments throughout the medical school system are funded by large uh, junk food companies that, you know, that have a... Um, have a vested interest in uh, minimizing the danger of junk foods and sort of promoting it. It's it's okay, and even even you know things like the body positivity movement, which is you know which is sort of accepting people's body, largely applied to obese people. And I I you know I completely agree that you know we we should all accept our bodies and whatever you know we have. But the idea of promoting it such that they're doing it i i think body shaming is wrong for any reason but but obesity normalization by some of these uh body positivity campaigns um can be fatal if you know we understand that obesity drives diabetes it drives cardiovascular disease it drives hypertension it drives cancer it drives alzheimer's disease you know there's these associations so the the these movements are funded by you know large large junk food companies have a vested interest in people accepting the effects of their junk food and not considering it harmful anymore and and yeah there's there's just so much going on in that area yeah so some of your research was funded by drug companies in in the past correct i think you talk about this in the book yeah, I mean, as my, you know, as a, as a, you know, tenured professor at a large medical school, I was expected to do research. And, you know, I had a lab, I have a lab, my lab received millions of dollars in grants from, from drug companies, device makers, and, you know, the federal government, NIH, and that was the practice as I was doing, I evaluated some drugs and, even to the point the policy was that the drug company would not let you publish the results unless they approved the study results. So they could cherry pick and only, you know, they didn't want bad, bad uh, uh, information or not bad, but negative information right. uh, or negative drug results published. But yeah, I, in, in the past I did that. And to be clear, the the material in my book, this is not something that I have done the original research on. These are not my ideas necessarily. Uh, they're the things that I found in the literature and I applied to my own life and I changed the chronic diseases that I had and was able to reverse them. And I realized that most of my colleagues weren't aware of this and I certainly wasn't aware of it before I did the really deep dive. So this this book is an effort just to let other people not suffer the way that I did with these chronic diseases and, you know, take charge of their lives and do lifestyle changes that, that really, really make a difference. <laughs> mm. 
what was your thoughts when the drug companies funded this research and they told you you cannot publish this unless it has positive uh, connotations as opposed to to our drugs? Well, to be clear, uh, in my experience with them and different people's experience vary, the, the drug companies I worked with, they didn't say they would publish it unless it was positive. They said they have final final veto over any publications. Okay. That's all it was. So it's sort of a neutral statement, but as you you've inferred, they're not going to block positive articles. You know, they're probably going to block articles that they don't like for whatever reason. And but giving them the final say sort of removes some of the um, uh, some of the value of academics in that you know it, it's hard enough to get negative studies published anyway a lot of journals just don't want to publish them because they're not as interesting you know mm. this drug didn't work but here you have even the drug company that sets up uh something where they could even block it mm. and this this was a while ago i'm not sure it's still going on now uh, i haven't done drug studies for a while with these drug companies but i suspect it probably is but i don't know that for a fact okay i wanted to let's uh change the topic into something else. Um, I wanted to ask about, because inflammation is a topic that gets thrown around a lot. And I, I got to be honest, I still don't quite fully understand what inflammation is. Well, you're not alone. I mean, it's nobody, nobody, I mean, nobody really understands it. It's, it's, well, well, inflammation in general is the body's response to, um, let's say in, in, in general principle to, to foreign material coming in. So, Let's say if I get stuck with a thorn uh, from a bush, the my this the tissue around the thorn will swell up and turn red, and cells will go there, and the immune system may kick in depending on what's on it. So that's a healthy response. That's a healthy inflammatory response. It's typically called an acute response because it's it's sudden. You get stuck with a thorn, you you get a little redness, and then it heals and go away. The in general, the 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 bad kind of inflammation that people talk about a lot is chronic inflammation. And there are bad kinds of acute inflammation also, but um just simplifying things here. The uh when in in modern society, there's certain foods that drive inflammation. There's certain things we can do in our sleep that drive inflammation. There's certain things we can do with uh, exercise that drive inflammation. There's certain things that can do with stress that drive inflammation to the point that inflammation is turned on on our bodies at a low grade all the time. And this, this, this low grade inflammatory response is bad for several reasons. It takes up energy. It drives things like insulin resistance. And inflammation is associated with all the major chronic diseases that that will determine how long we live. Basically, the big killers, which is you know cardiovascular disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease, and then you know diabetes and obesity as well, and downstream effects of those. So inflammation and it's linked with um, insulin resistance, although they can recur, they can occur separately. There are a number of environmental toxins that can, tr can trigger inflammation. There's a whole, there's a whole library of diseases called autoimmune diseases that are very poorly understood, uh, but they're a big factor in those is inflammation and how the body responds to either real threats or real insults or even perceived insults in, in the mind and stress. So 
in addition to the lifestyle factors are I mentioned, there are also other other um, occult toxins in our environment that we may not be aware of. Lead, you know, from the lead paint uh, on the walls, from mercury, from dental amalgam fillings that people used to put in, mold toxicity, um, uh, uh, facial uh, personal care products we apply to our skin. You know, sunscreen and other things, makeup. Um, these are sort of like. If you think about it, they apply to our skin. So it's like food, except in the U.S. and really worldwide, there's no significant regulation for personal care products along the same lines as there is for food. You know, if you want to make something to be a food and it, it, you're going to serve it to people, it has to be, you know, meet certain certain uh, tests that, that it's not going to harm them. The, the personal care products industry is much, much more lenient and much, much less supervised. So there, there are all sorts of problems with things that we put on our face and we put on our bodies. And, and, and we use these all the time, potentially, that um, you know sometimes we put them on and we leave them on all day long, like deodorant, maybe, if we use deodorant. And even things like mouthwash, which uh, I, I no longer use because the effect on the oral microbiome, uh, uh, it's sort of like taking a, uh, an antibiotic, only you, uh, instead of killing all your gut microbiome, the, a lot of the oral mouthwashes uh, kill the oral flora, and then it repopulates, but it may repopulate with something pathologic, nitric oxide, uh, a healthy... Uh, chemical is created in the mouth, and those bacteria get wiped out with the uh, with certain mouthwashes as well. Robert, this has been an awesome conversation. Please let people know where they can find your work. Um, probably the easiest way to track me down is uh, my website, which is Robert Lufkin, L U F as in Frank K I N M D. Dot com and I'm on social media and other things as well. And um, if if people want to get uh, if they, you want to try the book and see what it's like, you could download a uh, a sample chapter, the first chapter of the book, for free on the website and um, either an audio form or a regular form and check it out. Let me know. Let me know what you think. So it's available for pre order. When does it uh, come out? Yeah, the, the book is published. Uh, it's going to be published in uh, May, June 2024. So we're finalizing the figures and locking everything down in the neck by the end of this year. And then the publishers take about six months to to uh, do the final preparation before it comes out. Right. I highly, highly, highly recommend people go checking it out. It's uh, it's great. It was a fantastic read. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast with Robert Lufkin. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast. I keep saying this, the bigger the podcast gets, the bigger the guest, the more interesting guests we can have on the podcast like Robert here, and the more value I can ultimately provide you with this podcast. So something to consider. Follow the podcast if you haven't already. Thank you so much. And until next time, peace. <laughs>